0: Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Eclectic Folk Podcast. My guest today is going by the name Aurora Borealis. I first met her at an ayahuasca ceremony I attended the year prior, and sensed that she must be an interesting person with a cool story to tell. In this episode, we explore how doing some volunteer work in South Asia inadvertently led her to enrolling in university under the discipline of leisure studies, where she received grants to attend and profile some of the various Big music festivals in Western North America. She is a prolific patient of plant medicine. That's a mouthful of peas. Some people might use the term psychonaut, and recounts how her travels led her to the Sacred Valley in Peru to attend a ceremony. I really enjoyed the energy she brought to the podcast, and hope you will you will find something valuable in listening to her experiences. Hello, good afternoon or evening or morning wherever you are. I'm joined today with Aurora Borealis who's come and is going to talk to us a bit about her life, her passions, her hobbies and what she's into today. Um so Aurora, are you okay if I call you Aurora for short? For sure. Great. Um Aurora, where do you where do you come from? Where were you born?
2: I was born in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I always thought you were an Alberta girl.
2: I am. But <laughs> I was born in Nanaimo and I lived there for three or four years. Spent the early days of my life there. So I don't have many memories other than sensory ones the ocean, breezes, and the taste of a roadside blackberry. And that sort of thing. But um, my parents moved to Alberta when I was, yeah, about three or four. And then I grew up in a small suburb outside of Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, It was called St. Albert. And it, yeah, it was pretty, like, white, middle class. Um, Not a lot of diversity there. But a really nice place to grow up. Um, objectively speaking, really grateful Hmm. for, yeah, just the access to a beautiful river valley that was there, and it bordered on some really beautiful prairie lands, and I had a very peaceful childhood growing up in the burbs, so no complaints. Uh,
1: I guess I grew up in sort of the burbs too, inner burbs of uh, Toronto, Um, but I think probably a little bit different. It sounds like it. Mine didn't have so much natural. We had some, but not so much uh, exposure to the wilderness. Um, Did you spend most of your life there or or did you kind of like leave when you reached a certain age?
2: Yeah, I left as soon as I could, (laughs) sort of like, uh, I felt like it was a really sheltered place to be. And again, quite safe. um, But kind of that lack of diversity and a bit of I had a bit of yearning to see something else about the world and see more of what it had to offer in this sort of narrow expression of life that that existed there mm. and um <clears throat> quite a wealthy place and within that sort of some um I guess, mindsets or lifestyles that I wasn't really connecting with as a young person. And so, um, my parents separated when I was about 17 and then my father went to move or he moved to downtown Edmonton. So when I was 18 and I finished school, I moved in with him. Mm. Um, and that was, yeah, uh, right in the downtown core and I got a job at a restaurant across the street and did some traveling and went to Southeast Asia and had my mind opened, um, to the reality of, um, how a lot of the world lives and
1: just, so you, just to bring, just to bring it back a bit, cause I sort of want to cover each of those steps a little bit in more detail. Sure. You mentioned, uh, something about the, the mindsets of where you were, you were living it, it was incongruous with you or something?
2: Um, <clears throat> in some ways, yeah, I felt um, it was a little bit materialistic where I grew up. And it was a community that prospered as a result of its proximity to Edmonton, which is an oil town um, and an industry town and quite blue collar. And yeah, did well in the the oil boom years. And that's how my father made his fortune as well. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for all the privileges that that lifestyle afforded me, but I also found there to be, um, kind of a superficiality about it and kind of, a a meaninglessness to mm. it as well. Mm. Just sort of this capitalistic accumulation without kind of substance. Yeah. So that's sort of, there was this yearning for meaning and for diversity and for like something else other than just sort of like wealth accumulation and living in the burbs amongst a whole bunch of other people that were also doing this, even though it was a very nice place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found there was a vacuousness to it that, um, I sought to, f- to fill with more meaning.
1: Hmm. Living, so you moved to the downtown core of Edmonton before you did that traveling. Were you exposed to anything in the downtown that sort of sparked that motivation to travel? Like did that sort of awaken you to a wider world? Did you meet interesting people? Or did you still feel sort of that similar sense of triviality, materialism there as well?
2: Um, Less so, for sure. There is definitely more going on in the way of like interesting folk and differences in lifestyle and all of that. But I don't know if it was necessarily tied to my move to Edmonton. I think that my move to Edmonton was part of that searching and that yearning that I had to travel and to see other things and this was a first step that I in some ways could kind of like get out of the bubble mm. the bubble town that it was.
1: Yeah, I can relate to that. I felt I think a similar motivation when I when I like finished high school and want and I um I went to university and I could have gone to university in the in like a place near my like near where I grew up and I could still live at home and save money, but I wanted to I wanted to like experience just living on my own, getting out and breaking free of that. Um, so anyway, yeah, you lived in downtown Edmonton for some time and then you decided to travel to Southeast Asia?
2: Yeah, and there were like various stages of, I guess, my awakening to the world of travel. Um <clears throat> but Southeast Asia was my first major trip, I would say. And that was when I was eighteen. I turned nineteen on the trip. And it definitely I came back a different person for sure.
1: Which countries did you go to?
2: I went to India, the northern province of Rajasthan, um, as well as Vietnam and Thailand the south and the north of Thailand. And um, yeah, especially being in like the echo chamber of white people for so long where I was and being very white myself and um, experiencing that lack of difference just in the place that I grew up and having this certain standard of living that everyone considered normal. Um, it was a quite a trip to travel across the world and see how the standards were quite different and how people were um, organizing their lives in a very different way and standards of everything that were different. Mm. Cleanliness and um, just the ways that, yeah, people were living their lives. So,
1: Did you have like sort of shock and awe reactions to that? I've never been to India, but I heard sometimes it can be seen as kind of a dirt, like it can be like kind of maybe dirtier than many people are used to.
2: Yeah. I mean, the sheer volume of humanity that exists there is something for sure. And it, it, and India was the first place that we went and it was a massive culture shock initially. Mm. And it was quite extreme being there. It felt like we'd landed on another planet or something like there's people (laughs) riding elephants in the street and people's turn signals probably don't work so they're just honking continuously to let you know that they're there and they're a car and they're there and it's a lot of sensory overload and you know some of the most amazing food smells wafting out of nearby restaurants and then the smell of the shit from the the train station that the latrines are just open to the tracks and um just wild extremes of beauty and ugliness and riches and poverty and everything smashed all together in this seething mass of like humanity and culture
1: yeah i've always personally been interested in india I- I remember growing up, I'd read, like, some Indian author's Rohinton Mystery or something. Have you heard of him at mm-hmm.
2: all? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Fine Balance.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. And, um, of course, the culture is fascinating, the religion, like Hinduism. Um, what made you choose uh, to travel to India, and why specifically those, like, two northern provinces?
2: Well, I actually participated in a, a youth program, I guess it was for people that were um, 25 or under and it was an educational group program where there was six or seven of us in the group and then there were two group leaders that were mostly there to kind of organize the travels and keep everybody on track. But it wasn't uh, like there was enough freedom in there. It was sort of like we're all doing this activity today. If you'd like to join, it's included in what you paid. But if you'd like to do something else, then you're welcome to do that. Mm -hmm. So it was nice because it was equally balanced between education about those countries. And we learned some of the language and, you know, what was possible because they're quite different languages and how much can you really learn in such a short period of time. But they made an effort to introduce us to the cultural norms um, of the places we were going to and um, some of the history and the backstory. And then we also did some trekking in each country, which was really neat to walk the land and see villages and how people were living kind of outside of big urban environments and we would also do a home stay in each country so stayed with a family they'd split us up and we would do a volunteer project in that community and yeah live with the families and see how their day-to-day lives would unfold and also give back to that community in some way so Yeah, it felt um, really balanced and it wasn't one of these youth Kentucky tours getting drunk in different locations (laughs) that we can see white people doing Um, quite problematically. And so, yeah, it was um, really opened my eyes and I feel like it was structured in a good way to really expose us to a wide variety of environments and people and we weren't, you know, traveling first class. We were like in the economy class with everybody crushed in there, and um, like
1: go. on the trains and such.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were staying in hostels, and we weren't staying like in fancy spots. So, as a young person, I feel like that's you know, especially coming from a, a very privileged upbringing, it was something else to see to see that and to live it. And experience that.
1: So, what do you think um, was the biggest shock to your system doing that? And what lesson was the most important takeaway?
2: Um, the biggest shock was probably just the sensory overload, especially coming from Canada and having a lot of personal space and um, you know access to quiet spaces yeah. where there is nothing there's, there's no people there's just the sky above and the land around you mm. and um, to have all of that filled with sights and sounds and smells and kind of this clamoring commotion mm. of humanity that was probably the biggest um, shock and as for what I learned, it was just to profoundly experience my privilege in this life and um, to have my eyes open to, like, in a lot of ways, we are the 1% over here and we take for granted so much. And I, I, I came back, like, really feeling that and really seeing that around me and how people were taking things for granted and oh man if you 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 know could only experience what's going on over there people would have such a yeah deeper gratitude probably for the smallest things like like rain showers I came back calling them rain showers because that was such an uncommon thing over in Asia to have like a shower that was like warm and coming from above because I'd gotten really used to just like a cup in a bucket.
1: What do you Oh no sorry, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, you mean like to shower, like yeah. in the in the bath? To wash yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah. okay.
2: Like a shower that's like raining. On you, <laughs> as opposed to like often it was just a tap and then you'd fill up a bucket and you have a pail in the bucket and you would just like scoop the water over you.
1: Yeah. But there, I mean, there is, it sounds like, it sounds like you were living with people who were disadvantaged, even in India, if that's the case. I'm not sure about India, but I think there's like a robust middle class of people living in condos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of
2: course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, they made an effort to like, get us out of... I guess the typical middle-class environment that Mm. probably all of us being able to afford a trip like that, Mm. you know, or having parents that would send us on a trip like that, Mm. um, would probably not, you know, have any idea. Right. Sort of thing. So to have that aspect of diversity rather than
1: sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important too. I, uh, I remember my first squat toilet, for sure.
2: <laughs> that's changed my life. <laughs> Honestly? That's, that's
1: another thing that's changed my life. I think the squat toilets are a little underrated. I think uh, things move more quickly.
2: Oh, in in effect, it's actually quite barbaric how we shit in North America. <laughs>
1: Why do you say 100%. so? 100%. Yeah.
2: Because squatting is actually much more anatomically correct for voiding your bowels. Hmm. And sitting, you're not in the correct position, you're not bearing down in the same way. And Mm. it actually you don't you don't get uh, the same completeness Mm. of voiding. And also your cheeks are like smushed together and your your poo is just like coming out through your cheek like it's just barbaric. And then we when then we wipe with toilet paper and like it's not clean. No. No. Yeah. So I have a squatty potty now. What? And I've tried to bring a little bit of the poo-poo shamanism of <laughs> Southeast Asia into my life because it's much more civilized, <laughs> to be frank.
1: I've always, I'd, I I'll have to ask for a picture of that at some point because I don't know how you hook up your, your system with a squat toilet. Um,
2: well, it's literally just a stool <clears throat> and you squat on it.
1: And it like fits over the toilet. Under. Fits under the toilet. Okay, I think I get that.
2: So it just elevates your feet, right? So you're in a proper position.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Good for you. Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah. So it's taught me many things.
1: I also found you waste less time in the bathroom when you're when you're squatting.
2: Definitely. Well, that's what I mean. It's yeah. it's the proper position. Yeah. To just have it flow.
1: It's a combination of it flowing. And also, like, you know, your hamstrings maybe start to <laughs> start to hurt a bit and, like, you can't really look at your phone and, like, balance and, like, you know, I don't know. It's, like, hard to stay in that position for a while. So you just, like, kind of go in, you go out. Saves up a lot of time, I'd say.
2: You should give it a shot.
1: I just might, yeah. I might ask you where you bought that from. Uh, after the interview, of course. <laughs> Coming back to your trip, though, so you went to India first, and then Thailand and Vietnam.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it was um, obviously they're very distinct countries and cultures and everything, but it was it was more of the same. Yeah. In terms of like, we did a trek and we did a homestay and we did volunteer projects and um, yeah.
1: Which Which country did you enjoy? Um, living in the most? Which country or culture, like, m- resonated with you more so?
0: Um,
2: I guess they all did, but they were all very different. Mm. So, yeah, I don't have any sort of interesting story about that, I wouldn't say.
0: Hmm
1: i've been i haven't been to india i've been to thailand twice and vietnam once and um personally i preferred thailand to vietnam for whatever reason i mean for maybe some reasons uh i felt less of a friendly vibe in vietnam than thailand but i mean like it it depends on the person and the place but i i think um yeah, I felt like more viewed as just a source of, like a, like a source of, like a pinata of money or something in, in Vietnam, whereas Thailand, in some parts I felt that way, but mostly not, just in like the very touristy parts of like Bangkok or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't explore Vietnam very well, so there's probably a lot of it that I'm not doing justice to. Um did you find it like too hot for you?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: What's your like uh comfortable level of temperature as an Edmontonian?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Canadian. I'm a northern Canadian, I guess, in the sense that I am not a big fan of super hot temperatures. Mm-hmm. And even in the Canadian summers, it can get a little too hot for me. So, so yeah, in the twenties ranges is, is good for me, but in India it was like 40 ish and very humid and yeah, quite overwhelming.
1: Could you function well in that, in that like temperature?
2: Not really. No, mm. but I mean, you got used to it eventually and it was just like continuously sweating and hydrating and. It was okay. I adapted, but definitely felt like a wilted flower a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. I I at first felt that way, but eventually grew to actually enjoy it. Like, I guess I felt like I like saunas and uh, steam rooms and you're kind of, I remember being in Vietnam in some valley and it was like 40 degrees. That was the hottest temperature I've ever experienced until that time. And I could like drink a two liter bottle of water and, like, not have to go to the washroom after and just yeah. sort of finish it in an hour or something. And almost, I guess, I'd just sweat it all out. Um, but, yeah, I kind of liked it in some weird way. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's an experience. Yeah. We're getting those kind of temperatures here now, too. But.
1: Yeah, yeah, last summer.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So after your trip, you came back to Canada?
2: Yep. Mm, came back to Edmonton and... Um, I had the travel bug then, though, so I decided to, I wanted to keep traveling, but there was this sense of familial duty, like I needed to go to university, Mm. because I'd taken a year off after high school, Mm. and during which I did that trip, and I joined the workforce, and et cetera.
1: What did you study in university?
2: Yeah, so I decided that I needed to go and do this thing called university, so... I tried to find the program or situation that felt the least like school. Yeah. So I enrolled in a first-year university program that was run by Queen's University in Kingston. Um, and they have a campus in a castle. in, in It's called hurst Castle. And it's in the southern UK, sort of outside of Brighton. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, it was real Harry Potter vibe. Wow. and
1: I didn't realize beautiful. Queens had a, yeah. had a campus there.
2: Yeah. Hmm. And uh, gorgeous English gardens and old trees and just in this winding pastoral landscape. Like, yeah, something that the old English poets would have written about. Hmm. And um, the dorms were real crappy and old, but the castle itself was just super magical and had a courtyard and all these old features that were super quaint and cool. So that was really neat. And it was just a generic first year university, you know, Mm -hmm. suite of courses. So it wasn't super specific and I really enjoyed my time over there because we had Fridays off of classes. So I just took every cheap flight I could on Ryanair all over the place. And some of them are real random, like Copenhagen in January. But it was also really cool to experience everything being so close and so
1: accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm envious of the deals that you get in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um. I didn't know that about you, that you studied out there. Were you just there for that first year or did you stay for subsequent years as well?
2: Yeah, I was just there for that year. It was, that was how it was structured. It was just a <clears throat> a one-year thing. So it wasn't really designed to accommodate multiple years. It was mm. an exchange. Mm. Um, so after that year, I came back to Edmonton and it was quite an expensive year doing an exchange and international student fees and et cetera. Mm. So I decided to take another year off and work. And um, I was just working in the restaurant industry and um, deciding my next move scholarly wise, I guess. And I decided to go to the university of Alberta and take recreation and leisure studies because it also seemed, very unschool
1: like. Unscholarly, perhaps.
2: Perhaps, although in, it's a whole discipline unto itself. And the fact that it's considered unscholarly is sometimes lamented by <laughs> scholars in the field. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, so what, sorry, what is that? Uh, leisure, what was the first part? Something and leisure studies? Recreation what does one study in such a field?
2: It's very diverse. It's as diverse as what people do for recreation and leisure. So it's anything from Dungeons and Dragons to extreme mountain climbing to going to a restaurant to, you know, anything. It's anything Mm. and everything in the scope of it is quite vast, although a lot of the funding goes towards sports and that sort of those sorts of forms of leisure, because I guess that's where the money is in terms of leisure centers and gyms and such. But, you know, there were people in my faculty studying like community gardening and lots of sorts of things,
1: Mm. so... Do, do you study like the economics of that? Is it is it more like economics and business focused or is it more like health focused?
2: Both. Uh, like it's, it can't, you can focus anywhere that you'd like. So I'd say tourism is more focused on economics and, you know, driving tourism numbers and things like this. Mm. But there's also a lot of people focused on on health benefits and wellness and also just enjoyment and spiritual fulfillment that leisure pursuits can bring.
1: Very interesting. Did, did you have um, a notion of like what you wanted to do upon completing the program or were you just sort of like, this is my interest and I'm not going to think too much, but I'm just going to go where my heart's tugging me in regards to school.
2: Yeah, what I really wanted to be doing was traveling, but I felt like I had to go to school, so Mm. that was... I felt that way, too. Yeah. (laughs) And I sort of
1: regret it. Do you regret it a little bit?
2: Yes and no. Mm. It definitely spiraled my life in a different direction than maybe would have occurred otherwise, but, yeah, no sense in regretting things. It just is what it is, and it couldn't have really been done any other way,
0: Mm. you know? Hmm.
2: So, no, I, ha- I I really had no clue what I was going to do with it. I kind of wanted to figure out how I could possibly get paid to travel. Um, but I ended up getting somewhat disillusioned with just the day-to-day of the, the academe and the somewhat neoliberal nature of my university experience them trying to create cogs in the wheel to drive (laughs) the economy and yada yada and i just sort of wanted to take education for education's sake um which people still do but it's less common and less employable i guess or something like this less valued Mm. in the working world generally Mm. which is unfortunate But then I met uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. Karen Fox, in taking a required course for my degree. And she single-handedly transformed my university experience. And here's someone who was working from within this institution and teaching very basic, like, life skills, I would say, that I hadn't encountered before. I was like, this is so refreshing like we would have a lab every week where she would have us lie down on the floor and she'd lead us through mindfulness meditation and body scans and awarenesses of various sorts. And she'd have us journaling about what we were feeling and taught us things like nonviolent communication and how to get in touch with one's needs and then to come from that place when making requests. and how to make yourself heard and not in a way that's like not aggressive and etc. So you know, stuff where I was like just blown away by the basic simplicity of it, but also that I'd never before encountered this anywhere in the school system. So I quickly took every class of hers that I could and uh, she had a lot of very interesting, different teaching approaches and styles. And she was focused on the process rather than the outcome. And it threw a lot of people for a loop and they didn't understand how they were being evaluated, but it was, it was quite clear. It was just counter to everything that we'd previously encountered in our university experience where everything leads up to this midterm paper exam sort of format Mm. and she was very directly looking at how are we taking in the information that is being presented and assigned and then trying to directly um, apply that into our lives which is pretty life-changing information so yeah that was great (laughs)
1: You said you took every class of hers. Was that throughout the duration of your time there?
0: hmm
2: Yeah.
1: Did she change the trajectory of where you were heading towards or were you th- where you thought you were going to head towards after school?
2: Yeah, I had no idea that I was going to take more school, but at one point Karen said, so are you going to do a master's with me or what? i said okay karen it's on (laughs) and so i did i took a master's with her and she said you can be whatever you'd like to do i'll support you with it and so i was like wow that kind of opportunity doesn't come along every day Mm. so we decided to look at um quote-unquote transformational music festivals and what exactly does that mean you know festivals calling themselves transformational what even is that and what about these spaces are purportedly able to facilitate or precipitate experiences that might be you know perceived as transformational for people's lives
1: is a transformational music festival any music festival that some person might find transformational or is there a a sub quote-unquote sub-genre of music festivals that are like transformational style
2: yeah the latter
1: okay what mm-hmm. would be an example of that
2: so <clears throat> yeah there are you know I don't even know if the term is still really in use this is a few years ago now I mean probably it's still floating around out there but Um, festivals like Envision in Costa Rica would be one there used to be a little festival called Astral Harvest that happened north of Edmonton that would be another Um, the Intention festivals would be another Um, it's like somewhat debatable but people have called like the the Shambhala music festival um, of that genre as well It's getting, like, a bit on the large side, but it definitely has a lot of those same elements that...
1: And, sorry, what would those elements be?
2: Yeah, so there was a more extensive list that I was more familiar with back when I was doing this, doing my thesis, but essentially it was a multi-day event that took place, and everyone stayed on the site, and normally... People were camping outside in contact with the natural environment and fully immersed in the experience. So people weren't coming and going. Mm. They were staying there for multiple nights. Mm. And um, usually there were some aspect of like workshops, and people were able to learn something new there or try out something new. Maybe it would be yoga or some kind of movement or Maybe they learned something about breathing or alternative energy or et cetera. There's other opportunities to connect with others and learn. As well as um, typically electronic music um, was sort of the genre of those festivals. And um, probably a few other things that I'm neglecting, but those are sort of the
1: core. Hmm. So it's a music festival that often incorporates some elements of spiritual community. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What What drew you to, the, to focus on this? Is it because th- that you also enjoyed going to those kinds of festivals?
2: Yeah, as a young person, they were quite transformational for me, I would say. Hmm. And I didn't see a lot of this in the existing leisure literature. Actually, very little. I mean some things quite a quite a bit has been written about Burning Man, mm. which would potentially be another variety of that sort of festival. Um, but yeah, very little, if anything, written about smaller events that were happening in Canada and in Western Canada specifically
1: mm. what what um what's an example of something that you found transformational about going to one of those festivals? It was
2: really fascinating to be in an environment where people were very free, whether it was with their style of dress or in their interactions with other people, the way that they were moving to the music, the way that they were just... So out there with who they were, and they didn't care what anyone thought they looked like when they were dancing or expressing themselves or freely sharing their love and appreciation for other people, this life, the festival, etc. It was a lot of openness, and that was very inspiring as like a a young person that was quite closed in on herself.
1: What, um, what, like the first time you went to one of those festivals, how old were you? And was it also a culture shock too? Because like, were, were you, were you interested in dancing? Did you enjoy dancing? Or was that something you had to sort of like learn to, to like, because my sense of you is that you're somewhat introverted. I could be wrong with that assessment, but just my perception, does that resonate? Was it like sort of hard to break out of that shell or did it, did it just, you were just there and you're like, oh, I get it. And you you dove right, dove right in.
2: Um, yeah. So I guess I was 20 years old when I first attended Shambhala, which was my first festival, which is a pretty big one to start out with, but I was brought there by Um, my partner at the time and his group of friends that were experienced um, Mm. festival goers, I suppose. And they kind of led me down the rabbit hole of this whole scene. And um, it was drugs. It was drugs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Short answer.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in a way... MDMA?
1: Ecstasy? Ecstasy?
2: Yeah. And also, um, LSD and it was quite profound because nothing else before had opened me up in that way and just loosened my inhibitions around my self-concept and what I thought was like silly or appropriate or whatever. It just went all out the window, my cultural conditioning, my familial patterning, Mm -hmm. um, these ways of relating that had just become like default ruts in my brain that were suddenly like, Oh, why do, why do I feel I have to be that way or, or not? I could just create a new story here. And here's everyone else around me also doing that. And that was quite profound to be able to step outside of myself to look back at myself and be like, Oh, I don't know if I actually like that aspect of, my cultural and familial patterning and here i have a chance to write a new story so a lot of uh just visceral experiences in my body of dancing and translating the music through my body and enjoying the feeling of it and not getting all up in my head about how i looked on the dance floor or how other people were judging me mm. um it didn't matter mm. And that showed me that that was possible because before that, I probably could not have imagined that that was even possible for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And maybe at some point I would have, but I think it would have taken me many years of like work and self-development and therapy probably to get to that point that those drugs showed me in an instant. Did- and I- I can't say that that was then like those lessons were then immediately integrated, but at Mm. least I was like shown Mm. like the door was open and I could like see this other reality.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, Yeah. That was almost my next question. Like, did you, like after that, could you reproduce that, uh, like lowering of your inhibitions in that way without drugs? Did you try or did you sort of rely on, on those drugs? Uh, um, to continue that going forward when you went to other festivals or do other things like that?
2: Yeah, I would say that um, a bit of both. Mm. I wouldn't say I relied entirely on drugs um, to achieve those states, but in the festival environment, it's sort of like a festive part Mm. of the scene, and that's not to say that everyone that goes there does drugs by any means. Um, but it is a large part of the culture mm. and a large part of this, like ritual of ecstasis, I guess, and connecting to this. Mm-hmm. Kind of like stepping outside of oneself. Mm. And so through these experiences at festivals, I became more interested in ecstatic dance and, um, movement practices that i encountered there whether it was yoga or um yeah even just going to dance events and a genre of music that i didn't even like before i went to that
1: the electronic one
2: yeah Mm. yeah and so it did then translate into my regular life when i wasn't uh using drugs definitely
1: It gave you more confidence to express yourself.
2: Yeah, Mm. exactly. And seeing how everyone there was just doing their own thing and be like, yeah, why not? Mm. Seems like a more fun way to be than Mm. constantly worrying about being trendy or cool, you know. Like
1: how you're being perceived.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Mm. Just do what you like to do and if it makes you feel good, great.
1: Yeah. That's a good lesson. It took me longer than you to absorb that. I think, for myself. Did did you find like you you mentioned MDMA and LSD? Did you did you mix like is the optimal wavelength for you to be on at these things to be mixing the two or is it one or the other on different days?
2: Really depends. Um, I guess for me. Um, I guess it depends. Yeah, I have, I have mixed them before and sometimes that can be really nice and sometimes it can be a lot. Sometimes it's nice just to do one thing and experience that Hmm. and not sort of come up on another thing when you're already on something. It can be, yeah, it can be a lot for your body, but it can also be, um, I guess that particular combination of MDMA and LSD would be called a candy flip.
1: Oh, cool! And I've done that. I've done that before. <laughs> I remember. I remember all these like these funny names and like when it comes to drugs of like mixing things. What was what was an eight ball? That's something more sinister. What is that? Do you know that? I don't know what that is. I probably don't want to know. <laughs>
2: Probably like cocaine and, it's cocaine and speed or something. something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I didn't do that, just to be clear. Or heroin, maybe. I don't
0: know.
1: Oh, that'd be weird, mixing cocaine and heroin, I can imagine. <laughs> sort of like you're mixing ups and downs. <laughs> so you're, um, yeah, you studied this program, you're going to these festivals, you got a master degree.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: What happened after that? What were you thinking then? Uh,
2: After that, well, I guess, yeah, I graduated. And now I have a very fancy piece of paper that (laughs) says I'm a master of leisure. (laughs) So, well, yeah, the full degree title was Master of Arts in Recreation and Leisure Studies. So I just edited a few words out and we got Master of Leisure. (laughs) So then I decided that I would just live my life (laughs) as a master of leisure.
1: (laughs) You do sound like an expert in leisure.
2: And it's so ironic because I did not need to go to school for more than six years, almost seven years in order to realize I just wanted my life to be about leisure.
1: (laughs) Maybe you did though.
2: I guess, yeah. Maybe you had
1: to go through all that probably late night cram sessions and exams and all that, if that was indeed your experience to realize, like, hmm, this doesn't seem worth it. Maybe I'll just be a master of leisure.
2: You know? (laughs) The great irony of life. (laughs) Feel that.
1: This seems like a good time to talk about our sponsor, MindLift. MindLift makes magic mushroom microdose capsules each capsule contains 100% pure psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. There are three dose sizes, mild, standard, and potent. Each item has been formulated to give people a just perceptible high, where they should still be able to carry out their day-to-day functions of their lives. The ingredient has been sourced from an organic farm in the mountains of Western Canada. I take it, and have nothing but good things to say about it. Microdosing can help alleviate depression and remind people to have a zest for life. I find it helps me with those things, as well as sometimes making me more productive and creative. So, if you like, if you, sorry, if you live in Canada, please check out MindLift at mindlift.me. That's M I N D L I F T dot M E. And you can enter eclectic folk, one word uppercase at checkout for 15% off all products. So you did have quite a travel bug that bit you before. Did that persist after your graduation? Did you want to travel more or did you want to sort of not, I guess?
0: Um, Did that wear off a bit? A
2: bit. I guess I decided that I wanted to move away from Edmonton, and that became more of my focus, was moving away from Edmonton because I felt like it was a lovely place to be, but I'd been there for too long, and I needed a change of scenery, and I didn't necessarily desire like a, you know, to set my whole life on the road kind of change of scenery, but... I wanted to live in a smaller place that was closer to nature and live a bit more of a zen life of leisure rather than like a frenetic paste, constantly traveling sort mm. of thing. Mm. So that's when I moved to the mountains um, in a smaller town situation um, that just felt like it was more aligned with me culturally and Spiritually and otherwise.
1: Without naming the town, um, because we do try to be somewhat anonymous here sometimes, how did you happen upon that town?
2: Well, I'd first encountered it as a result of attending Shambhala Mm -hmm. and coming through the region um, before and after that festival and just really appreciating the beauty of the landscape here. And um, yeah, just being felt, feeling drawn to the forests and the landscape um, that's here. And just the particular alchemy of leisure activities available in every season close by, Hmm. the fact that the town is. Small enough to not feel urban, but large enough to have events and culture happening, such as festivals and um, music and art and nice restaurants and things. And Mm. I knew I could get a job easily as a result of my restaurant experience. So there were a lot of things that seemed to just fit and feel right. So I moved my entire life to make that my reality.
1: Mm. Have you, have you traveled much since you moved?
2: No, I haven't really. Um, Most of my travel has been to return to see my mother in Alberta Mm. and, um, a couple of trips to the to the coast to visit some family on the island and some friends there. Mm. But I can't say I've done any international trips for, for some time. Well, it's not entirely true. I've done a few here and there um, and gone down to Peru as well as down to Mexico mm. um, to and more healing journeys, I guess you could say.
1: Less for travel, more for uh, retreat of sorts. Yep. Yeah that's interesting. I'd like to come back to that. Um, but my first, uh, question that popped to mind was, do you feel that you replace that energy that would have taken you traveling with another, another energy that led you t- into developing some other passion or interest?
2: Um, I think
1: I asked because for me, Like that's sort of how I feel that what I've done. I used to be a big traveler as well. And, um, like my own personal realization was that, uh, you can still find incredible new experiences, but you don't have to like go to another part of the world necessarily. Like you could get involved for me, like in gardening or some other new hobby or passion that can be just as exciting uh so i'm just sort of asking you like did you feel that way too was that your your experience
2: uh yeah i guess in some ways um i've learned that i need to be always learning in order to be happy and fulfilled in this life so i'm sort of a slut for novelty um And yeah, in some, at another stage of my life, it was more like the travel was the novelty. Um, but then when I moved my entire life to a new place, then suddenly everything was new again Mm. and in a different way. It was like, now I'm putting down roots here and yeah, some things are more grounded and rooted in the same, but, um, it's, I still feel like a tourist in this place as well because so many things are new and I didn't grow up in this landscape and learning about the geology of this place and the plants and the ecology and the different little microclimates and the people that are here and, you know, what the people are doing here and there's such diversity that keeps me engaged um, in a way that I'm not seeking to find that fulfillment in more far flung travel experiences even though i still would like to do some traveling at some point there's still some places in the world i'd really like to visit but um obviously the pandemic put sort of a damper on that and focus was redirected and that might become relevant again but yeah definitely put on hold for obvious reasons
1: where are those places what are your like top? Do you have a top three list? Top five?
2: Yeah, I'd love to go back to Peru and spend more time in the Sacred Valley. It's a very magical place.
1: What's the Sacred Valley?
2: Um, um, I guess it's in the mountains there, um, and the Urubamba River runs through it, and it's the Valley of the Incas. Like Machu Picchu is there, and there are so many other ruins and old historical sites around there beyond just Machu Picchu mm. that I think would be really magical to do more hikes um, in and around the area and just be there in that landscape. The mm. hummingbirds are amazing. The The locals are amazing. The, the plant life is wondrous. So... Mm there's that. I would really like to go to Japan. I'm very drawn to the culture there and the cuisine and the gardens and the philosophy. And Mm. I think that that would be amazing. And I'd really like to revisit Europe actually, because I was there when I was quite young. Mm. And I feel like now that my palate is more developed and I have just a bit more appreciation for wine culture and Um, history and everything that that would be really nice I'd like to visit France in particular because I speak French and I'd love to use my second language and just dive into everything that's exquisite about that country and also Germany and um, i love to go to Berlin especially it seems like such an interesting place and it's part of my family heritage as well um, French and German are both part of my ancestral line, so I'm drawn there mm. to explore a little bit more of that side of where I come from.
1: Mm. That resonates with me too. Um, for me, more the UK, like England, Ireland, but France as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I had a plan uh, before the pandemic hit to do a world tour, and I was, I had a everything all sort of set up I rented out my condo and I was about to buy a plane ticket and that was on the list Germany also Croatia I want to see like more of Central Europe which I hadn't been to before mm. I thought that'd be kind of neat hmm um so we met initially at an ayahuasca retreat. And you mentioned that you had been to Peru for a retreat. I assume was that for ayahuasca? Mhm. I wanted to also ask you about that. How did you discover that? You know, how many retreats or trips have you participated in and what like what do you what do you get out of it? What like what would you recommend to someone who hadn't tried that? How would you like well, how would you like relate the benefits it's given to you? That's a lot of questions. Let's start. <laughs> let's start with the fir- yeah. Let's start with the first of uh, how did you discover that? Right. um,
2: <clears throat> I was referred into my first circle by an influential mentor in my life at the time. Mm. And I won't mention who they are or my relationship to them because they've asked me to keep it confidential. Sure. Um, But, yeah, someone who I had and have a lot of respect for um, referred me into their circle to sit with them. And I'd been curious about the potential for mind-altering substances to open up new realms of consciousness and awareness of what is possible for Mm. ourselves and for our lives as a result of my festival experiences and drug-taking activities there that had positively impacted my life for the better, Mm. for sure. And um, was curious about um, the potential for ayahuasca to help me on my healing journey. And so this person was like, "Yep, yeah, that's what that's about. Come on into my circle.
1: Could I just uh <clears throat> ask one quick question? What 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 was you what was what did you identify as like your healing journey? What what did you want to be healed from? What did you think that could help you with?"
2: I guess at that time it wasn't as specific and got more specific over time as I have aged and grown more experienced and have had more therapy and more experiences and have honed in more mm. on what was going on. But um at that time being sort of just an awkward, insecure young white girl, um just like seeking more answers like why am I this way and How can I be a better, more fully expressed uh, version of myself? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So, yeah. And sort of picking apart, I guess, some of the darker aspects of my personality or the traumatic things that I've experienced in my life and my childhood and et cetera. So... You know, that's all pretty nebulous, but Mm -hmm. it sort of was at that time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I had a specific, like, I want to be healed from Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was just like, I have a sense that healing needs to occur. Mm. There's a lot of things that feel edgy Mm. or uncomfortable in my life that I'd like some insight
1: on. Mm -hmm. So the, the anonymous mentor mentioned that this might be a path that could help you with that. And you looked into it yourself, I'm sure, to a degree, and you were willing to give it a shot.
2: Yeah, and I largely just trusted because I really trusted this person Mm. and they were uh, like an elder to me Mm. and, you know, quite a few years my senior and everyone in the circle was as well. I felt quite humbled and honored to be there because I was the youngest person there by at least a decade. And that told me something too about the quality of the circle and also the, the depth of the work. You know, here we're like folks with pretty regular average jobs and middle-class working people mm-hmm. that were coming here to do some work on themselves. And it wasn't like your average circle of unemployed hippies. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: yeah, I know yeah. What you mean.
2: <laughs> So yeah, it was really profound even in just that sense of Mm. being in a circle of elders Mm. and being seen and witnessed and listened to and listening to the insights of others and what people were going through in their process and in their journeys. Mm. That was very
1: inspiring as well. And so after that first experience, how did you feel? uh, Did you feel it changed you? Did you get some of that healing you were looking for?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the first experience was definitely the first step, if you will. I know some people that do ayahuasca once and they never have to do it again. They just receive this massive download of information and it percolates through for years to come. But mm. for me it was the first step and it was just the beginning. And... um I actually didn't experience much, actually, for a large portion of the... It was a it was a two-night retreat, and so we drank ayahuasca for two nights, and the first night I didn't experience much of anything, actually. I was just enjoying the songs and the circle and the teachings and everything that was going on, but I wasn't feeling the effects of the medicine. Mm. And then... At a certain point, the shaman, one of the main shamans, came over and he said, have you been up for a healing yet? It's part of the process. And I was like, oh, no, but I'm good. Like if someone else needs help, you know, go for it. And he's like, no, no, come up. It's part of the process. I was like, okay. So I went up to his little area at the front of the room and knelt on his sheepskin. And then he was singing an ikaro, which is a healing song that the medicine heals through the song and he was doing some energy clearing with a feather and some smoke. And then all of a sudden he was touching kind of around the crown of my head. And then I, all of a sudden I felt the top of my head. I had this vision that the top of my head cracked open Hmm. and all these bees flew out. (laughs) And I suddenly had this profound awareness of how there was, a bunch of bees trapped in my head and the bees were all my thoughts and they were buzzing around in there and they were trapped. And it was also a blockage that was preventing the medicine and the visions from coming in. And the thoughts were all my anxieties and my fears and my preconceptions and my, my patterning and my cognitive big brainness that I default into in a lot of my daily life, but I was trapping it and the bees need to go forth and pollinate the land and then return with the honey and there needs to be an exchange happening. And all of a sudden, like I had this download and then all of a sudden I was real high and I was like, <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> to crawl back to my space and I was puking and suddenly like very much in the whole experience and the fact that he could see that was happening and then clear that and then kind of like no (laughs) I was like I really don't want to puke on this nice sheepskin rug yeah and then yeah made it back to my spot and all was well and then I was really in it and then the second night there was a lot more work that was happening but even just from that that first experience I got a lot of insight and yeah.
1: Yeah, that's mind-blowing. Do you the person who did that with you, he had ingested some ayahuasca himself as well, right? Mm-hmm. Do you like do you think that that gives him a certain enhanced ability to intuit what's going through the participant's mind? Like how do you think he knew that you needed that? Was there an element of that or
2: yeah, yeah, I think that that's how they work. The medicine gets them on the level, I guess, and um, the the shaman is the conduit for the medicine to heal, mm-hmm. and that's why through their they heal through their song. But it's the medicine, actually. It's not the shaman; it's what's coming through. Shaman is the channel. So, um, them they drink only a very small amount because they're very sensitive and attuned Mm -hmm. through their many years of study um, and practice with the plant Mm. plants Um, and they have done multiple dietas and that means they've like gotten to know plant allies that then help them in the healing process Mm -hmm. whether it's like the clear sight, and then the actual clearing and Etc. So there's a lot that goes into it, and I don't claim to be an expert by any means. But, but yeah, definitely, it's the medicine that then allows them to see things in the field about people and blockages, and yeah, it's a, it's, it's like I've heard it described as spiritual surgery. Mm-hmm. So it's very precise, and um, like you wouldn't just observe an open-heart surgery one time and then think that you could do that, you know? Like, it would take many years of training, and it's the same way for people that serve ayahuasca. They train for many years in order to, like, know the subtleties and the energetics and the fields and etc.
0: Hmm.
1: How many times did you um, participate in a ceremony before you decided to go to Peru to do it at the source of it all?
0: Um,
2: it's hard to say quite, quite a few times, like to the point where I don't can't count. I don't remember how many times, I mean, maybe I could add them all up, but, Hmm. um, unclear. So, yeah, that's a good question, but but quite a few years of attending circles pretty regularly, usually um, at least once, often twice a year, Mm. doing two nights Mm. ceremony, spring and fall. And then um, I guess my trip to Peru was more so precipitated by my own version of healing crisis, as well as the opportunity being offered from some people that I knew locally that had teachers in Peru that were bringing people to see their teachers. Mm. So I knew that I could trust those people, Mm. and that is a big thing nowadays with how popular ayahuasca has become and how much tourism it has engendered, Mm. and Mm. therefore when there's money in it, there's mm. sort of unsavory folk that are attracted to trying to make money mm. that way and maybe don't have the best intentions for people's healing. So mm. I knew that I could trust the intentions of these people that were bringing folks to see their teachers.
1: Um, when I consider going to Peru... And doing a retreat there, um, I feel a little afraid. There was a, a mutual acquaintance of ours who I met at the ceremony where we met who told me about his experience going to Peru and how it was kind of a disaster for him. Did you? <laughs> and I think that was more maybe his own internal state than it was necessarily the people who he was participating with but did you feel uh, intimidated by the fact that you're going to a land you hadn't been before, you don't know the language, and you're doing a rather intense psychedelic drug um, in an unfamiliar setting? Um, Not at all, actually,
2: because my experiences with La Madre have been overwhelmingly positive.
1: I'm sorry, who... Or um, what the, is that? The grandmother? Oh, okay,
2: um, which some people call the medicine. right. Um, because she's a her own, she's a very potent um, master plant teacher mm. and is often personified in that way mm-hmm. as like a grandmother or an elder. And so I felt I like, felt I felt a sense of
1: that as well. Yeah. Mm.
2: I felt like I was going to commune with the grandmother. And, um, I was like having a lot of very uncomfortable physical symptoms that I really needed some support with that the modern, the current, um, medical system was not helping me out with at all. So I was like, well, time to try this other culture's system of healing because this is getting worse and this is quite unpleasant and I can't live like this. So I was in some ways at the end of my rope um, with what I was experiencing at that time. And so I was really looking forward to getting out of the environment that I was currently in and getting some answers because I couldn't sort it out on my own and I needed some like heavy hitters to help me with it. So Mm. enter... (laughs) <laughs> Shapibo shamans and their sure. the excavation of the darkness, which is what occurred, and it was very needed.
1: And it resolved those issues that you were facing.
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, it didn't completely resolve it, mm. um, but it did for that time. And when I returned to my environment, um, the issues returned, but in a way that I could, I had, I was so clean. That's one thing that occurs um, with an extended period of time with the medicine and you have to follow a very specific diet in terms of what you're eating physically as well as what you're intaking into your field in terms of like the media that you're consuming and Hmm. the people that you're interacting with and in what what ways. how,
1: How do you limit that? What, what media are you supposed to avoid and what kind of people are you supposed to avoid?
2: You're just supposed to avoid things that are stressful and upsetting and um, media that's violent mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, traumatic and just generally get into a meditative sort of zen state of mind. So you're not supposed to have any um, sexual contact with yourself or others as well. And just to really get internal and curious about your state and what you're hoping to work with when you're there. Mm. So the cleansing starts happening even through all of those things and how you have to eat really cleanly and really respect, Mm. um, everything and no alcohol and no intoxicating substances as well. Mm. Or marijuana or tobacco or anything like that. So, so that's already helpful. Mm. How how long
1: does that sort of fasting go for before before the ceremony takes place?
2: Ideally about a month. Some of them are shorter, but
1: And you're supposed to also cut out a lot of things from your diet as well, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so the that was helpful. And then As I said, when I came back into my regular habits and patterns and eating and interacting and et cetera, it was very clear what was causing my issues. And it wasn't that ayahuasca solved everything for me. Mm. It was that it gave me greater clarity on what I needed to solve for myself and the steps that I needed to take to modify my life in order to... Heal my own self. Yeah, ayahuasca doesn't do the work. It just shows you the door. Mm. But you have to walk through it in your day-to-day life through every choice and action that you're making and every pathway that you're choosing to fire on a daily basis. So it's hard work, but ayahuasca showed me a depth of clarity so that I really understood what was happening and that it was under my control and I wasn't a victim of whatever my reality my past experiences my traumas etc those things happened but this was in this reality now where I could have a profound impact on my life and the situation that I was in moving forward
1: was the, was the experience in Peru more potent, um, more fulfilling than the other experiences that you had undergone with that plant teacher?
2: I wouldn't say so. It was just that it was more prolonged. Hmm. And in that way, it was perhaps more potent because there were multiple ceremonies. And before that, it was two nights in a row and it was a weekend experience. But then... That first uh, trip I did down to Peru was a dieta, so it was more strict in terms of the diet and the preparation.
1: I'm sorry, what's a dieta?
2: So it's um, a diet, essentially, where you're taking another plant, Amazonian plant, and getting to know it, as an ally and a force of healing in your life. Mm. And um, so you're taking it into your body and you're feeling the plant in your body and the the plant is also helping you to cleanse and to uh, release what doesn't serve you as well as protect you and be something you can draw on as energy in the future if you need help. Could this be something?
1: Could this be any plant? Is it it a medicinal plant? Is there some psychotropic effect from ingesting this plant?
2: Um, No, not generally. Generally the ayahuasca is the psychotropic part. But you probably could dieta any plant, but typically they're more like the master plants that have more of a medicinal potency to them. I've heard of people doing dieta with like wild rose and things around here. Um, some of the master plants of this area, Mm. like cedar would probably be one and, um, tobacco and sage probably. Um, but, um, often, well, the dieta and those traditions come from the Amazon and they come from the traditional people Mm. there. So typically when you're doing a dieta, it's from an Amazonian, it's with an Amazonian plant.
1: I see. What what plant did you diet with?
2: It was called um, Pinión Colorado, and it was a sh- small shrub that grows in the Amazon, hmm. and uh, was a warrior plant and very cleansing. And the first time that I dieted it, it it really it really cleaned my whole system. Hmm. I felt very weak, and I had to have a lot of diarrhea and things just coming out of me, because I had a lot of stored garbage, Mm. physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Mm. And in that whole experience, I think it was six ceremonies in total. Mm. It was a ceremony and then a day off and then a ceremony, etc. For six ceremonies. So it was quite an extended period to be with the medicine, and also to sink into that environment and to go deep with the work. So it was more potent in that way, because there was just more time there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was very profound. I was very clean afterwards, because on that experience, I I was opened my eyes to realize that I was essentially living in a house with a bunch of garbage in it. Like some of it was my garbage and some of it was my parents' garbage. And some (laughs) of it was other people's garbage. I just allowed to leave in my energetic space. Mm -hmm. And then the medicine was like, I'm not going to clean this garbage for you, but you see it now. So I'm going to support you as you take all this garbage to the curb. And it was daunting. I was like, shit, this is a lot of garbage. This is a lot of years of crap that I've just been unconsciously accumulating. But it was really helpful to see it and then to have support to take it out and to start building some awareness around how I can not let that accumulate again.
1: How are you, like my... uh my experience with you, you always struck me as someone who's like very level-headed, very calm. Um, I haven't met too many people who I've found to be as calm as you. Do you think that, you, is that like attributable to what you've learned through these ceremonies or is that like a natural demeanor for you?
2: Yeah, I guess it might be a bit of both, but primarily... I think that it's a pretty natural demeanor. Um, I think that as a result of my work in the medicine world, I've like actually cultivated a greater inner sense of serenity. Hmm. Whereas I've always had this outer sense of serenity, but it belies my often quite frantic inner state Mm. because my outer state was a survival mechanism for my childhood and my familial environment that was, like, oftentimes kind of emotionally unpredictable. Mm. And uh, being level-headed and being sort of, like, a bit removed from the situation was a bit more of, like, a
1: defense mechanism. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. And pretending like things weren't bothering me or, or whatever, didn't have to be um, so emotionally involved in things. And that was my family dynamic as well, was there wasn't a lot of like open discussing of things or even conflict or fighting of any kind. It was very much like retreat into oneself and sort of like the vast gap of silence and
1: they didn't talk about their feelings or emotions yeah. very much. Mm. Yeah,
2: so I didn't learn that. Mm. Um, but I also learned like zenness and calmness, for better or for worse.
1: But a sort of more superficial version of that.
2: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And since I've learned a lot more about like attachment theory and nervous system regulation, and the fact that you can be actually like quite dysregulated in your, I mean, your, um, nervous system and yet still project an outward air of regulation. But it's, that's often due to, um, like, a adaptive response to your environment Hmm. rather than like actual calmness.
1: Would you, do you think it's better to be just honest with your internal state? like if you're frantic inside better to just connect that with the exterior or do you disagree with that would you think it's it, it really makes depends some sense
2: on the situation mm. because in some cases it doesn't make sense to be frantic you know mm. at all right it's a context dependent thing but if you're able to generally if you're able to express how you're actually feeling mm in a way that's not harmful to other mm. people mm. and to be able to have that level of self-awareness and mm. containment and yet still express what you're feeling, mm. I feel like that is more preferable.
0: Mm.
1: But you you think now you're more connected to your internal state, your exterior and internal more or less match. So that calmness that I see, that is also going on inside. You don't have that frantic bee stuff happening, right?
2: I still have it happening for sure. Mm. It's not entirely like it's a very deeply held um, pattern, I would say. So it's still something that I'm working with, but I, um, I learn more all the time about how to externalize things that I'm feeling in my body and my mind and everything like that. So still on the, still on the journey it never, it never stops. Mm. I think of it as like, you don't just clean your house one time and then it's clean forever. Mm. Like you still have to keep cleaning your house Mm. Mm. um, periodically over time. So the process of life gets it dirty and, um, yeah, you might fall back into old habits and et cetera. But, um, being continuously on the path of healing means that you're just doing your best and that's all you can do
1: um, do you think of yourself as a spiritual person? what do you like what do you do you believe in the divine or like um, a higher power or anything like that?
2: I think I'm a bit more of a I guess like an animistic sort of spiritualist in the sense of I think that a lot of things have uh, spirit to them or an energy or whatever term you want to use. But I know a lot of the indigenous traditions have more of that belief system where they ascribe a spirit and a personification even or just a, like an essence quality to things like the wind and the sky and the animals and the plants and that there is a deeper level to those things that are not just things. They also have their own spirit and their own essence and they are alive. So I believe that. And through my experiences with plant medicines, I know that to be true. Mm. Because they are plant consciousnesses Mm -hmm. that we can interact with. Yeah. And they are potent Mm -hmm. and powerful and very wise. And they've allowed me to access things about myself and my parents and my ancestors and truths, you know, Mm. that it's like something that's outside of myself that's brought me profoundly into myself at the same time and it's yeah it's some kind of
1: magic so do you think do you do you find it like sort of surprising a little bit that they don't resent us a bit for all the environmental destruction our species is is doing to the world to their, like, plant brothers and sisters and such?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, I haven't even really thought of that before, but in a lot of ways I think that, like, the earth is going to be fine, you know? It's us that are going to destroy ourselves and our culture and everything that we've built, you know? So the, the plant world is incredibly resilient and will bounce back regardless of what happens with us which is looking more and more dire hmm. uh, as we go down that rabbit hole but but yeah i've i've experienced nothing but like incredible benevolence from the plants hmm. and that's incredibly inspiring because it's true you know we've enacted incredible destruction upon their species even to consider them so much lesser than mm. when actually the opposite is true. Like there are our elders and they've survived on this planet for far longer than us and they have a lot to teach us, but a lot of us um, don't have time and space or enough belief to listen. But, but yeah, they're not, they're not like vindictive or holding a grudge or just more in the flow of like, well, this is what it is. And yeah. A lot maybe of...
1: those sentiments are, are just alien to plants. Like they can't, they can't feel that way. Perhaps that's like maybe a human sentiment.
2: Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and in some ways, I don't know if I entirely even agree with that necessarily because we tend to dichotomize nature and culture and think of ourselves as separate from nature but we are nature Mm. so there's also that
0: Mm.
2: we are that and i think Mm. plants have a deeper sense of that plants are like well you are that too Mm. Mm. whereas us humans we tend to like yeah we're different than that or Mm. we're above that or whatever but Mm. actually it's just all this illusion of ego and separation and this false reality that we find ourselves in that is perpetuating our demise in many ways.
1: (laughs) She says with open eyes. (laughs) Um, Do you do any other practices for your, um, I guess I'll use the word like spiritual development outside of, uh, like drugs or or plant medicines and what have you. Like, do you do any other practices or techniques?
2: Yeah, um, I'm a very dedicated yoga practitioner. Um, I try to practice yoga every day if I can, and that's been very helpful for my body mind. Over time, mm. um, mostly asana, but. More and more, also pranayama, breath work, and more meditation, mm. which are the smaller fronds of my practice, but are very essential.
1: What is a fr- frond?
2: Like a like a lotus petal. Oh, okay. Because I know that asana, like the physical posture practice, is just one petal of the many petaled lotus mm. of all that yoga entails as a spiritual practice. Mm. But it's been very it's been a very helpful set of petals. What do you get out of that? Um well, peace and uh freedom from suffering. Mm. And I have a condition in my body that's essentially a rheumatoid arthritis of my spine and um daily yoga practice has been the only thing that's kept me pain and medication free and my brother has the same condition and he's on some pretty heavy um arthritis drugs to manage his symptoms so yeah yoga is incredible medicine um and i came at it primarily through the avenue of needing that medicine to heal my body but what I didn't realize was that the reason that it's been so helpful is because it's a mind-body practice, and I have a mind-body condition, and rheumatoid arthritis is that. And it's a, it's an autoimmune disease that's chronic. And um, if you've already read any of Dr. Gaber Mate's work, he talks about chronic autoimmune conditions with, like like, we don't the modern medical system has a long way to go in terms of like understanding how to treat such, such conditions, but, um, Eastern traditions have a lot more experience in dealing with such things. And it's often related to adverse childhood experiences and unintegrated traumas that are essentially like this hidden stress that's within Mm -hmm. the body and these personality traits that are, um, were adapted to deal with this stress, but that is essentially like internalized in the body. Mm. And then it doesn't just go away. It has to go somewhere and it manifests in these internal inflammatory conditions. And mm. so yoga as a spiritual practice has helped me to connect my mind and my body and to um, help me to make sense of a lot of that and to transcend it and, some powerful shit
1: <laughs> Yeah sounds like um perhaps I have I haven't delved as deeply into it as you What what is asana um like vis-a-vis hatha it, it, does it involve stretching is it more meditative What sorry you said you practice as, asana Oh uh, asana no yeah.
2: asana just refers to the physical posture practice, like it's the like it's the physical movements that you're doing. Oh, okay. As opposed to pranayama, which would be the breathing exercises. I see. Or meditation, which is more like you're sitting, mm. you're
1: focusing. So, do you practice like different aspects of yoga, or is it mostly that body movement type?
2: With um, the school I practice with now, um, usually there's an hour long class and then forty five minutes of it is posture with 10 minutes of breathing and five minutes of meditation mm. in a standard class. But then there's also additional, you know, there's like a hour-long breathing and meditation class. Like there's different classes that are also available mm. um, if you wanted more of the breath work or more of the meditation.
0: Mm.
2: But for me, I've found um, that I gravitate more towards the physical
1: posture. Hmm. So what do you, what do you hope to do in the future? Where, where do you go from here, Aurora? (laughs) Or what do you, what do you, let's actually start with what are you into and I'll ask you what you want to do next. What, what are you into these days? What, like, what do you feel most passionate about?
2: These days I'm super into plants of all kinds, whether it's growing my own veggies. I help out on a local farm that's growing organic, no-till, lovely veggies um, to feed humans, as well as the medicinal plant world and things that are foraged in the forest. There's medicine all around us i um, really enjoying getting to know all of my fungi and medicinal neighbors, um, plants that are growing all around me that I can get to know their names and what they might have been traditionally used for mm. and to do a little bit of that medicine making and preserving on my own time as well. Mm. Um, and learning more about how plants are so helpful. For me, I have a huge indoor garden at home that just brings me a lot of beauty and joy.
1: You said indoor garden?
2: Yeah, I have a lot of like plants in my indoor space and a few of them are herbs and some of them are just like ornamental and I have a like a five foot tall coffee plant that just started producing little coffee beans, which is really exciting and things like that and then I have a big garden Um, and I'm working with a somatic herbalist as well to do some therapy sessions as well as, like, working more deeply with specific plants to help with my body and my mind and my nervous system health and more holistically look at all of these things that ayahuasca really, like, opened the door to how important all this was. But I can't be drinking ayahuasca all the time. <laughs> it just, you know... <laughs> a isn't available and b finances and c practicalities um but there's a whole lot of other plant teachers and helpers that are not psychoactive that i can be taking in my regular life that help with the plethora of mm. things so so yeah my hobbies and my interests are very much gravitated towards plants not only what i'm just like consuming on a daily basis in terms of food but also medicine and um Really interested in food sovereignty and food security as well, and you know, producing and growing more of our own food and medicine and learning what is around us as opposed to like shipping things in from far away where we're not sure who has picked that and how ethically and how fresh and
1: et how modified.
2: Yeah, and who knows, right? Mm. So it's neat to develop these more personal and unique connections with the land that's around in our our plant communities. So that takes up a lot of my time.
1: Hmm. That's nice. Are you a vegetarian?
2: I'm not, no. Hmm. And um, it's mostly because of my particular body and my condition and having arthritis um, is pretty essential for me to consume um, some compounds that are found in animals, especially fish. Mm. Um, I find that I just feel a lot better when I'm eating fish and fish oils. So I do my best to support, um, community fisheries that are fishing in the right way, Mm. small scale fishing families, Mm. um, knowing where things are coming from because if it's small scale, those people are supported by that industry and they don't want to see it collapse Mm. they're not overfishing and they're not desecrating the environment because they needed to continue for their lives as well Mm -hmm. so there's that and i think that there are some realities of living in canada where there's a whole season where plants don't grow in the winter Mm. and i would rather eat animals from a good source that's local and nearby. And I knew those animals were treated well Mm. and had a good life and didn't travel thousands of miles in the case of like an avocado or a cashew or, you know, I don't think that GMO corn and soy is, is any better. Um, and I think that it's important to consume critically no matter what our dietary choices are um, but yeah those are those are my choices and it's because it feels better in my own body
1: mm. yeah. yeah yeah I wasn't uh, asking to cast any sort of dispar disparagement or, or judgment or anything just I don't wondering think you were yeah um so that's the present and where do you want do you have any plans for the future any goals like what 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 do you want to do next?
2: It's a great question. And um not entirely sure. There's a lot of uncertainties in the world at the moment. And I would love to steward a piece of land where I could actively cultivate a relationship with medicinal gardens and the native plants of that land and to sort of just live a peaceful life there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just a crazy world at the moment. And as a single person on a single income, it's quite hard to imagine how I might afford to achieve such a reality, but who knows, you know, Mm. who knows what will happen. I'm (laughs) still quite a young person and I'm sure have much healing and growing to do. And maybe it's just, uh, something that I can't quite see yet, but uh, I intend to continue living my Zen master of leisure life. (laughs) And I don't have any like super grand like aspirations for my life. I just like to live simply and live happily and have my needs met and continue on the path of opening myself and healing myself and allowing that to ripple out into the world and affect others around me. And I realized that I'm a change maker in that way and in small ways and with individual human to human interactions, you know, I'm not a change maker that makes like huge waves crash over people. And Mm -hmm. I sort of create a gentle ripple and that's okay too.
1: Yeah. I think that's a, a really good, like, Humble and um, honest approach that I think some parts of a society or or like the mainstream culture diminishes, but I think that's really nice and respectable. I think most people are like that, and I think people should be happy like that if they can.
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's the introverts' way in some ways. I mean, I know in some introverts are also like big wave change makers but a lot of us are a little bit more understated and maybe a little bit more in the shadows than our like extroverted brothers and sisters and um yeah uh it's also good to just be humble and to be mellow and subdued about it because they're both needed in this world and you don't hear so much about the people in the behind the scenes, but that's pretty pretty essential as well.
1: Yeah, I think our species needs all sorts of people for it to run efficiently, if, or not just efficiently, but for it to run well, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever that means. We need people like, like that. If we were all clout chasing or whatever, it would be a disaster. For sure. <laughs> yep. We need that balance. Yeah. Is there, just before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to bring up or discuss?
2: Nah, I mean, we could go on and on, surely, but yeah, it feels pretty good to me.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for being a guest.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, bye for now. Which button do you want to press? One of the fun ones. I I forget. Oh, yeah. Okay. Goodbye, everybody.